Nowhere. We are your hosts and hopefully your new bookish pals. I'm Hannah MacDonald. And I'm Lydia Clare. Today's episode is the latest in our series, Top of Your TBR, where we invite notable figures to add their recommendations to our TBR pile. I'm very pleased to introduce our special guest for today, Maggie Shipstead. Maggie Shipstead is an American novelist living in Los Angeles. Her debut novel, Seating Arrangements, was published in 2012 and became a New York Times bestseller and the winner of the Dylan Thomas Prize. Since then, Maggie has written two novels, Astonish Me and Great Circle, and has recently published her short story collection, You Have a Friend in 10A. Her novel, Great Circle, was shortlisted for the 2021 Booker Prize and the 2022 Women's Prize for Fiction. It has also become one of our favourite reads this year. Maggie Shipstead, welcome to A Pair of Bookends. Oh, thanks for having me. We like to start every single interview uh, by putting people on the spot and making them feel a little bit uncomfortable. (laughs) (laughs) It's a great strategy. It's good, yeah. Great start. Um, So, Maggie, what are you currently reading? So I am reading a falling apart paperback that I pulled out of a neighbor's little free library. You know, I was walking the dog and it's a 1996 mystery by Martha Grimes called Hotel Paradise. And it's sort of like incredibly boring, (laughs) but exactly what I want. Like it's, it's a 12 narrated by a 12 year old girl in an unspecified year I think it's in the late 50s and she's kind of investigating this death mysterious death of another 12 year old girl 40 years before but it's molasses slow it's tons of detail about food just extraneous whatever and I feel like this is the kind of book you could write in the 90s and people would be like oh a thriller you know (laughs) (laughs) oh I love that um what's it like reading from the perspective of a 12 12 year old I mean, I would find it very challenging to write that way. Um, I I think she does a good job. I think it's fairly convincing and it's helped by the fact that this girl, you know, it's a different era and the girl lives with her mother in sort of a rundown hotel on a lake. Um, So yeah, I'm reading that. I usually have a lot of books going, but that's for whatever reason has been the one I've sort of been working on the most. I love that. I love that it's like from a little like neighborhood library like yeah that's so cute (laughs) I love that (laughs) I think one of my neighbors is in the book industry and I don't know who she is but her little free library I think it's a woman her little free library always has galleys in it and relatively new books and so that one I always pay attention to as opposed to you know some of the others where it's like old textbooks and whatever yeah (laughs) (laughs) like 14 dictionaries that always 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 like uh, reference yeah. books, and I'm like, no. <laughs> yeah, or like old diet books, and you're like, oh, yeah. oh no. no. <laughs> <laughs> um, so obviously, we wanted to find out what you were currently reading, um, and we are dying to chat to you about your other recommendations. Um, but our listeners would probably kill us if we didn't bring you on and ask about Great Circle, and you have a friend in Ten A. Um, so we'll start with Great Circle. Um, so we'd love to kind of know where the inspiration and the concept for Great Circle came from. Um, I read that your brother is a pilot. Is that right? 
Yeah, he doesn't fly anymore. He just retired from the Air Force. Um, But the first 10 years of his career, he was a C-130 pilot, which was a four propeller transport plane. Um, But as a child, he was obsessed with airplanes. It just, he was one of those people where it seemed very clear he would be a pilot. And I think that's common for people who fly. Like I never, in writing Great Circle, you know, at the beginning I thought, oh, should I take some flying lessons? But I really never wanted to. It just kind of freaked me out the idea um and and people I know who fly just it was something in them that they needed to do and so I really put that into the the main character of, of Marion and um what was the um the idea for having the dual narrative um because we we both loved that didn't yeah. we um you know we loved that it's uh, Marion and Hadley and you know having the choice for a female pilot and um, you know, the actress and um, yeah, we just love that narrative. So I wondered kind of where the inspiration for that came from. Sure. Yeah. Well, so um, I told this story a lot, but in 2012, fall of 2012, I was in, this is where the, the idea for Marion came from. I was in New Zealand and I'd been working on a different manuscript and it just didn't have any momentum. I couldn't get it to go anywhere. And so I was like, okay, that's not going to work. And I was at the airport in Auckland and there was a statue of a female pilot, um, Jean Batten, who was the first person to fly solo from London to New Zealand in the thirties. Um, and I was like, oh, I'll just write a book about a female pilot. Like perfect problem solved. (laughs) Um, and it was about two years. This was so that happened after seating arrangements was out, and when Astonish Me was going into edits, but was still a couple years from publication. Um, so I didn't really do anything with it. I was editing Astonish Me. I was just busy, and so then in 2014, which is when I moved to LA, I just sort of sat down. I was like, "Great, time to start my pilot book." Um, and so I started writing, but I can't really plan my books in advance, so I just sort of have to start. Um, knowing very little about the plot. I knew that Marion would disappear while flying around the world, um, north, south. And my brother helped me sort of think about what sort of route she would take, um, what plane she would have, but I didn't really know anything else. And then um, also that she would transport warplanes during World War II. Um, So I sat down to write and then I was like, I know, I'll start this with the launch of a ship in 1909. And so it just started getting complicated from the very beginning. And I think I'd been working for about a month. Um, And like I said, I was pretty new to LA and all of my friends here work in Hollywood in one capacity or another. Um, and so then one day I sat down and just wrote a section in this totally different voice, this first person movie star voice. And I'd written a short story that's in You Have a Friend in 10A in, in kind of a similar um, voice. And so I thought, oh, you know, to me, it just seemed like the missing piece that there would be Marion and then there'd be this modern movie star, even though the section I wrote, which is when Hadley is leaving a nightclub and publicly cheating on her boyfriend on the surface had no connection to the pilot book I was writing, but I just, it just felt to me like it needed to be there. I needed this sort of lens on the past. And so I decided that Hadley would play Marion um, and kind of went from there, but Hadley took a lot more Marion kind of from the first draft through was pretty consistent. Like what you read in the finished book is not very different from the first draft. Whereas Hadley, I had to take a couple runs at it just to make it sort of fit with Marion in a way I felt was meaningful, but not too sort of cute and pat. (laughs) I found it quite interesting that both the acting and the aviation 
um, industries are quite male dominated. And I wanted to know what what drew you to those industries and what what kind of why did you you want to write the characters inhabiting those worlds, particularly the fact that they're female mm-hmm. as well? Yeah, well, because I started with Marion, I mean, I think when I saw that statue of Jean Batten, I, it, it, there was just something like, oh, these these early female pilots were so intrepid. Um, you know, they had such a push pull because there was a lot of public fascination with them. But, and it says this in the book, you know, they were also expected to bring a dress with them and to get out of the plane and sort of powder their nose for the cameras. And everyone wanted them to be sort of these adventurous women, but then they needed, the public needed this reassurance that they were still women, you know, and and weren't encroaching on male roles at all. And um, you could particularly see that uh, female pilots in the U.S. during the war also transported warplanes, but they were sort of kept to themselves more like in the UK, you know, sort of like they needed everyone. They'd take anyone to help. <laughs> and we were sort of like, well, we can't have women running around air bases. That would be chaotic, you know? Um, so anyway, I, I think I was, yeah, I was drawn to that idea of like, what kind of person would have the wherewithal to sort of persist in this male dominated field of aviation in that era and so in a way, I was reverse engineering Marion. Like the first section I wrote was the first part of the book where it's this excerpt from her logbook from around the world flight right before she disappears. And then I went back to her childhood and I was like, all right, how do you become that adult woman? Um, and with Hollywood, I mean, I think some of it was just a function of living here. Um, you know, LA is kind of a one industry town. Um, it's such a dominant kind of cultural force. And uh, I was interested at the time when I started, so I started writing in 2014, it was like pre Me Too, pre Harvey Weinstein story breaking, um, but everyone kind of still knew, you know, the way Hollywood works and the whole casting couch (laughs) element and and how hard it is for young women. And um, I was also kind of interested in taking kind of known celebrity tropes, like in this case, kind of like Kristen Stewart's relationship with Robert Pattinson when they were in Twilight and how people sort of projected this need for the fictional story onto these poor, you know, 20 something actors. And and that sort of, you know, I I just think for women, it's changed a little bit because I think celebrities become so fragmented, but, you know, for young female movie stars, kind of particularly in the, in the aughts um, and before, you know, there's no perfect way to perform womanhood you're too sexy you're not sexy enough you're dating the wrong person you you know shouldn't be dating anyone you need to get married like on and on everyone just has an opinion about how they should live and to me it seems like it would be just unbearable yeah Yeah. absolutely um so speaking of Hollywood now I'm not sure if you are allowed to reveal anything but I uh love an adaptation and I was just curious are there any plans in the pipeline for Great Circle to be adapted? We'll see. I mean, it's been optioned by a production company to be a TV series. Um, and I know they've hired a writer. They were sort of like, how, how involved do you want to be? And I was like, not very involved. And they're like, okay, great. Um, <laughs> so I don't know the ins and outs of where they are now. The writer um, is a woman. She's amazing. Uh, it's then her job to sort of work up an outline and take it to to other production companies that could conceivably pay for such an expensive what would have to be a very expensive series 
So I don't know, you know, it's probably not the ideal moment to be taking out an expensive series right now, like after Netflix's sort of contraction and there, there are other big epic um, limited series out there. But yeah, I don't know. It would be really interesting. I'm always sort of say I'd rather it be a good TV series and diverge from the book than be perfectly true to the book, um, which I, when I talked to the writer, I know she was planning some some changes and uh yeah it would be really interesting to see i would i would also love to just experience it as a viewer yeah that is so exciting <laughs> i was when i was reading it i was like i would love to see this on screen um yeah, i yeah. am just I, I just love adaptations i probably mention an adaptation every single podcast it drives so. me mad <laughs> I do too it's always yeah it's always exciting I mean I'm also cautious because both my other books other novels were optioned in various capacities and seating arrangements went through like three options with I mean two of them the first person option it was Sofia Coppola and the last person option it was David E. Kelly who made Big Little Lies Um, and so just from experience, I've learned that so many things have to go right, you know, has yeah. to get over so many hurdles. So I try to be very sort of case or us raw about it. Yeah. yeah. Um, shall we talk about you have a friend in Tele? Yes, please. Yes. Um, <laughs> do you want to start? Uh, yeah. So um, I, I mean, oh, I was a bit obsessed with this short story collection um, and kind of carried it around with me constantly. <laughs> um, I mean, it's here (laughs) um but I was just wondering whether you intentionally had a theme uh for all of these stories or whether or not you see them as kind of um intrinsically alone you know separate from each other or um and what was the intention with that Mm -hmm. yeah it's such a funny collection to talk about especially coming off a year of talking about Great Circle which I found there's so much to say about and 10a is weird because there's stories I wrote over 10 years, you know, the Cowboy Tango I wrote when I was doing my master's degree when I was 24 um, in 2007. And that's the only one from grad school. But then after that, I had a writing fellowship for two years at Stanford, which was a similar setup. It was a workshop. And I think most of the stories in there I wrote during that time. And then a a couple of them or a handful of them I've written after that kind of on my own, but in this really sort of dribs and drabs way. And and I I think, yeah, there's no linking theme, but I think because they all come out of the same consciousness, you know, they reflect um, things I'm interested in or preoccupied by. And I think there's also a little bit of like an inchworm quality of, you know, trying, a different setting or a different structure, some sort of technique, and then being like, okay, that was interesting. And then you like inchworm along to the next sort of experiment. Like I, I do think it's a collection that sort of is a product of my development and, and experiment experimentation as a writer. Um, but yeah, it, it is hard to sort of explain how they fit together because in some ways they really don't my agent before I came out she was like you have to figure out something to say about how they go together and I was like no I think I think for me it what it, it, it didn't feel like there was this huge you know overarching theme mm-hmm. but it definitely felt like they were all very you mm-hmm. having read your previous work 
I feel like if someone had put that in front of me, I'd have been like, that's Maggie. Like yeah. it just, it felt like everyone felt like you. Um, and I think that's so great to have such a strong voice. Nice. Yeah, definitely. definitely. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm curious um, with the covers. Now, obviously this is the UK cover, which I adore. But the the US cover is um, I don't know what they're called, like the the safety leaflets that you have on flights, aren't they? Mm-hmm. Is is that because it's like was that intentional because of obviously Great Circle being about aviation and oh. flights and stuff, or is that just me? Yeah. <laughs> well, so it was funny. Um, so it's the same cover designer as did Great Circle. Yeah. Um, her name's Kelly Blair and she's amazing. It's also been really interesting. All these, you know, translations of Great Circle are starting to come out now. And so many of the different countries have kept a variation on the American cover of Great Circle. So Kelly, <laughs> Kelly's work really sticks. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I saw like three possibilities early on and there was always an, there was a sort of take on the safety pamphlet although it was the standard images as opposed to the finished one which has sort of little jokes embedded in it and there was one with the silhouette of a commercial jet and one that was sort of a drawing of a flower through a window shape and I think they're all references to the title story you know taking place Mm -hmm. on on a flight Um, and so I was like I picked the the safety pamphlet one and she said well we're gonna have to create illustrations from scratch. And I sort of thought, okay, great. Can we shape them a little bit to connect more with the story? And so then she went back and did the the images for those who haven't seen it. um, It's like, you know, a a safety illustration, but it's someone on a flight, like dispensing vodka out of the tiny bottle into (laughs) her cup or like smoking a cigarette through an oxygen (laughs) mask, that sort of thing. And and so she added those and yeah, it was a real um, collaboration. Um, And how, how do you decide that something's going to be a short story and not a full-length novel? Like, was there a point with these stories where you realised that? Or I'm just wondering what that process was like. Yeah, so general, So my first two novels um, both started as short stories that I couldn't quite make work. And I wrote Seating Arrangements my second year of grad school. So the same year I wrote Cowboy Tango. And my teacher was sort of like... Mm, you know, maybe there's too much here for a story. Maybe it should be a novella. And I was like, oh, the world needs more of this. And like, (laughs) now I know that that's just kind of something you say to a student when you don't know what to tell them. Um, But so, yeah, I I adapted or I started to expand it um, the year after I finished at Iowa um, before I went to Stanford. And then Astonish Me was this like really long short story. It was about 45 pages long. and after I finished at Stanford, I started working on this, this manuscript I thought would be my second novel, actually the same manuscript I was working on in New Zealand when it, when it died on me and I started Great Circle instead. But I was like, oh, I'll take a break and I'll trim down this short story, this ballet short story. And then I made it 90 pages. And so I was like, okay, I guess I'll keep expanding it. And so it astonished me from starting to revise the story to having a finished draft that I sold to my publisher was only five months it was a really rapid process and gave me a really I was like I just I just bust out these novels it's no big deal and then you know I was like 
<laughs> went to start Great Circle and I was like, surely this will take me less than a year. And it took, you know, six and a half. So wow. <laughs> and it was it was originally a, a thousand page manuscript, wasn't it? Great yeah. Circle. Yeah. And this would still be a 750 page manuscript. So I cut 25 wow. percent. But oh, just to finish answering your question. Right. Yeah. I mean, like with a story when if you said, you know, add another scene to the stories in this collection, I would find that really difficult. Mm -hmm. Whereas the ones that I've turned into novels, I felt the sense of expansiveness and possibility. So there's kind of a feel to it. And Great Circle was the first novel I wrote not starting as a story. And I could see the downside, which is that I didn't have these built-in restrictions, mm -hmm. you know, in some ways like seating arrangements, the story, the short story had the first scene and the last scene of the novel. And I just wedged in 300 pages, whereas Great Circle was like a sprawling thing that had no limits. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know, just I mean, yeah. um, um, so Great Circle was obviously published last year. And then, it was yeah. Last year. yeah, it was last year. 2021 yeah. and then you have a friend in 10a was published this year well it was published in the UK this year was it published in the US mm -hmm. this year as well yeah I think they were within two weeks right of okay other. are there any yeah, yeah. others in the pipeline <laughs> <laughs> I am writing a novel um I really I started during you know, so, so yeah, I sold Great Circle to my publisher, both in the US and the UK in 2018. It was like two and a half years between selling it and when it was published, which is a long time. My other books have been two years and that felt long. Um, and so, you know, for a lot of that time, you're still editing and tinkering with it and whatever. And then it was like deep COVID by the time I was sort of free to start something new. And I found that to be really not a productive time. Like you would think it would be for a writer, you know, you're stuck at home, there's no stimulation. Like writers are always like, all you need is some quiet time. And suddenly it was this overabundance of quiet time, but also like this global catastrophe yeah. <laughs> and no stimulation from people. Mm -hmm. um, so I started writing, I thought I was gonna write a trilogy of mysteries um, and kind of started one and then the George Floyd protests happened here. George Floyd was murdered. And then we had the protests. And um, I was like, I am not writing a book that centers cops. Mm -hmm. And so then I kind of had to go back to the drawing board. And finally, finally, I don't know how long ago, but this in 2021, I finally got on the right track, I think, with what I'm doing. So I have about 80 pages of a sort of family novel set in LA and again I can't plan so I don't know exactly where it's going and it's not didn't start as a story so it feels a little sprawly um but I'm hoping now finally that like everything's sort of done with Great Circle I can really focus on it and start making faster progress but I I'm enjoying it um and it's it's set in LA and it's set now so I won't have the endless <laughs> research I had to do oh we can't wait I, to read excited. more of your words <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think we've we've picked your brain enough uh we will move on now to uh why we asked you on which was for top of your TBR um so the first book you chose for top of your TBR was 
The Idiot by Elif Batuman. Is that how you say your name? Okay. Um, can you tell us why you picked The Idiot? Well, I sort of chose, I won't name the, all the books, but I sort of chose books around uh, a little bit of coming of age, you know, books that are interested in young women, which, I mean, I'm not that young anymore, but, you know, I still find like an interesting period of life. Um I really, yeah. And I, I think also I was in the middle of reviewing the sequel to this book, Either Or, um, which I reviewed for the New York Times. And so I was rereading it. And I find her books um, really mesmerizing. She's a brilliant person. I also find them to be sort of, they sort of scratch at my brain where I'm like, what does this work? Is this <laughs> yeah. good? Like, I can't, like, what is the deal? Um, just for those who haven't read, um, it's it's very, very, very autobiographical novel about a freshman at Harvard in the mid nineties, um, who's Turkish American, hyper intellectual, overthinks everything. And it's, it's she's said, it's her. Um, and so not much happens. I don't know. What did you guys make of it? Did you enjoy it? Yeah, we did enjoy it. I think it's a very like strong narrative voice, uh, like very strong yeah. narrator, sorry. Um, and I'm kind of unsure on how I feel about character driven novels. I mean, a lot of like we love Sally Rooney and a lot of Sally Rooney's mm. novels are very like character driven. Um, and I kind mm-hmm. of enjoy those, but like I'm never quite certain. Um if I'm, a, if I'm a lover or a hater of them it's just an <laughs> odd um one but I was actually going to ask you um so obviously it is more character driven than plot driven like do you have a preference for either of those I mean I can kind of take both it depends you know like I think yeah. my sweet spot has both like I if a book is too right. plot driven like there are a lot of books where you sort of get hit in the face with the premise on the first page where it's like Mm. um I don't this family's maybe gonna has just lost all their money now what you know and and so you're clearly supposed to read through the whole book just to find out what happens and that's usually not enough for me like I'll just end up flipping through and seeing what happens then I'm like okay like I have to be interested in the little details and the words on every page and I feel like Mm -hmm. I am interested in that with her writing so I'll always read all of them and I don't know how many of these she's gonna write like her memoir covers her sort of life after Harvard I wouldn't be surprised if she writes like six books about this character Celine um so I don't know yeah I'll I'll both can go horribly wrong I guess is what I'm saying yeah, <laughs> yeah. character driven novels you thought you were safe no you're not <laughs> yeah you did do um an interview actually on the literary friction podcast and uh was speaking about a third book so that's kind of confirmed I like you're onto something, <laughs> yeah. but I think you're onto something with this <laughs> no it was really interesting to me too like when I was writing the review of the sequel it tied my brain into knots, partly because she'd been this really outspoken critic in kind of the mid-aughts when I was doing my MFA of MFAs and was very much of the mind of like, this is the homogenization of American literature and they forced people to be unadventurous and nobody writes about themselves, but they should. And it just wasn't my experience at all. Like plenty of people were writing autofiction even at that time. And I, I think she was kind of conflating like publishing trends with... Mm-hmm 
femme phase. And then also, and the books she admires the most are like Tolstoy and Henry James, neither of whom are autobiographical writers. And so I do have a little bit of this feeling where it's like, okay, so you yelled at everyone for everything they were doing and it was all wrong. And then you sweep in with like auto-fictional campus fiction, like, sure, it's great. It's really well done. I love it. I'll keep reading them, but also like, I don't know. I'm kind of like the more the merrier about these things. Yeah, yeah definitely. definitely. <laughs> um, I, I, what struck me about the book was how well um, Elif kind of uses location to explore characterization and to explore people and mm-hmm. the changes of location, particularly um, using them as kind of devices to move the story along, move the character along. Um, mm-hmm. And I found that, that that you also do the same in some of your work about char- characters in locations and about that changing them. Um, mm-hmm. I found that particularly in Great Circle. So I was just wondering whether that chimed with you, that mm-hmm. kind of using location as a device. That's really interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I didn't articulate it that way to myself at all, but I was excited when Celine went to Hungary. I was like, cool, like it's, it's externalized change, you know, yeah. and, and <laughs> this is not a character who changes a lot. And so when you get that, you're like, something happened. Like it feels like plot. Um, and the same was true either or she goes to to Turkey and it's like, oh, somewhere new, like things are going to happen. And it is, you know, yeah, an externalized way to bring the character into contact with new people and new circumstances. And, you know, I think that's sort of what we hope for when we travel too, is, is that something is happening to us. It feels like, um, yeah, being, uh, yeah, there's new possibilities and that's, that's true in narratives as well. Yeah. Absolutely. I think um, with the idiot as well, the the title is um, the t- the title. I don't know what how would you describe it. Like the title, <clears throat> the idiot is correct because it made me feel like an idiot <laughs> because it's so smart. <laughs> and then I was thinking like, oh, is this going to be really serious throughout? And then there was actually so many funny <laughs> moments. Yeah, like it is full of humor, and I I really enjoyed that. But yeah, it did make me feel like an idiot. <laughs> yeah it's, it's a funny title because you're like who which one of these people is the idiot like it could conceivably be most of the characters um yeah and I also found it I mean I because I went to Harvard after her I got there in 2001 I think she graduated in 2000 so we like almost overlapped and so the setting was so familiar to me mm-hmm. and there was so much pleasure in those details too that in some ways reading it I, I like couldn't I always wondered what it was like to read it if those didn't resonate as like I know that I know that I know that <laughs> name like I've eaten there you know um and I I, I guess I would as a writer, I really shy away from using specifics in quite that way. Or, mm-hmm. Like in seating arrangements, it's set on a fictionalized Nantucket. And I purposefully gave it a different name because I didn't want people to be like, um, like you wouldn't be able to see the <laughs> lighthouse from there. Like you wouldn't be yeah. there. that's not a real restaurant, you know? So <laughs> I feel like her specificity is also just sort of alien to me. Mm. <laughs> so uh, your second choice, was Writers and Lovers by Lily King. Um, And we were just wondering why this was on your list. 
I, so this was possibly the last one I added to this list. I loved this book. I read it early in the pandemic. Um, right around the same time I read Monogamy by Sue Miller. And they're both like, clearly I need Cambridge, Massachusetts in the nineties because the mm-hmm. idiot's set there. This book is set there. Um, and it just really scratched like my pleasure centers, like this coming of age character who's a writer, who's like in Harvard Square. She works at this restaurant, which is lightly fictionalized in the book, but was in this shared space with this theater group I was involved in in college. Um, and I also like, uh, you know, I do like a love story, like a romantic plot in a novel. Um, and ones that aren't totally clear cut, you know, like there's real appeal to both the men she's sort of involved with, particularly this older successful writer, which I would have been extremely seduced by. And then the way the book sort of, I don't know, like um, takes very seriously her instinct away from that man. Like, I think part of me as a reader was like no you should go with that guy you'll be secure you know <laughs> but it would be the wrong choice and and so I always sort of uh I like I guess plot elements like that absolutely yeah. and I think but for me what I loved about this book was the balance that Lily King manages to um do so well between the kind of tragic circumstances of her situation and how hilarious it is in part yeah you know, there are there is real humor in it and comic relief um is that something that you thought the novel did well is that something that you enjoyed from it absolutely yeah I mean I love a funny book and there aren't very many of them it's really hard to do you know and it's it's sort of like what I was saying before as far as plot and character I think for me, the humor that works that I like the most is like really deep in the language and in the character. And so it's less about sort of like comedic set pieces than it is just about observations or um, just sort of funny similes, things like that. Like other books that spring to mind that do that well are like um, Less by um, Andrew Shangrier and I Love One Day by David Nichols and they're parts in that book that just like make me laugh because on a sentence level you know it's like a funny comparison um so yeah totally the humor um just the situation like how she's living in that potting shed (laughs) yeah (laughs) Yeah. um you really I felt very invested in her yeah yeah and I think it's probably the most accurate depiction of what it's like working in a restaurant Uh, like I worked in restaurants for like 10 years and I've never read something that's kind of described Mm. it it's been so it was so spot on Mm. (laughs) just you know working uh, because um we're actors as well so um just trying to work as an actor and having to work Mm. in a restaurant and Mm. just this whole idea of like you know not feeling fulfilled as a creative and having to serve people every day Mm -hmm. and you know having a lot of kind of awful customers or you know having managers in restaurants shout at you and this isn't even kind of what you want to be doing um you've got to laugh that's why yeah yeah Yeah. they're like no I'm I'm not really here this isn't really me your boss is like pretty sure it is (laughs) yeah (laughs) so I was just wondering like you know it 
it exploring that kind of idea of artistic fulfillment and you know her on her journey to becoming a published writer um was there any parallels between her journey and your journey um you know what was your kind of experience to becoming a published writer like well my situation has been just like ridiculously charmed um there's been very little struggle (laughs) involved um yeah I graduated from Iowa in 2008 I guess um and I wrote I had a little bit of fellowship money from Iowa and so the following year I wrote seating arrangements and then I went to Stanford for two years on a fellowship and when I finished there seating arrangements was published um in 2012 when I was 28 so I've basically been a working writer since I was 23, just thanks to the largesse of these, you know, institutions like Iowa and Stanford, um, and been able to support myself, which is really unusual and something I'm genuinely grateful for. Um, and I, I, yeah, I mean, people who like have full-time jobs and kids and they're like, I get up at five in the morning and I plug away at my novel. And I don't think I would do that. Like, I don't think <laughs> I have the willpower. I think I'd be like, well, I'm a lawyer now, you know, <laughs> um, but I have had the experience a little bit like, where I've been more recently, I guess, when, cause I write for travel magazines as well. And so sometimes I'll be like, I I was just on a a trip in French Polynesia in February and was on a cruise and you get assigned to sit at a a table with people. And these people would essentially not believe that I was a novelist and (laughs) there's no Wi-Fi, So there's, I couldn't be like, you know, so they'd be like, um, like this one woman said her sister had a bookstore in the Netherlands. And I was like, oh, she should keep an eye out for my books. They've all been translated into Dutch. And she goes, Mm, she only carries books by serious authors. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so I do connect with, I mean, I've had other experiences like that as well, kind of sort of moonlighting on, on the service industry side of things and uh, for various reasons. And yeah, it's funny. It feels like a case of mistaken identity, like what you guys are describing, where you're like, no, no, like I'm an, I'm an actor. And yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think for us, it's the, um, I'm an actor. Oh, what have you been in? Yeah. This is something I've seen. Yeah, because we've done a lot of theatre. So if they've not seen us on TV, they're like, oh, so you're not real then. (laughs) Not a proper actor. Not a real actor. (laughs) Are you in a couple of acts now? (laughs) <laughs> yeah the same thing happens with writers you know be like well will I have will I have read anything you've written and it's like I don't know like I don't know <laughs> you read. what you've read have you and then it's like well you've read one book in the past four years so probably not but it, it's it's, it's, a, it's a similar career in that your success is measured by perceived fame according to whoever you know yeah, whoever yeah. has a different idea about it um yeah and I I think you know the lesson is probably just to kind of of let it go but yet people are always sort of bringing it to you like you said <laughs> so your third choice was Veronica by Mary Gatskill um when did you first read this and why has it stayed with you I think I read it when I was at Iowa um I think I bought it fairly randomly um and I yeah it's it's really haunted me forever I love this book I think 
the intensity of the narrative voice really influenced Hadley in Great Circle, um, and also the you, the title story of "You Have a Ten You Have a Friend in Ten A." Um, although she gets away with things, I don't think I could have. Like there's there's a real sort of like griminess sometimes to her writing and and a lack of filter, but um, just the portrayal of, of this model um and this sort of rarefied yet seedy world she's living in and then also the aftermath I found um just sort of intoxicating I loved her imagery and um yeah this sort of I don't know I just found it to be a book that was really hard to look away from mm. yeah mm. and it, this was written in the early north wasn't it I think it was 2004 I think that's 2005 yeah but it kind of feels like you know like really bold and daring for for that period of time mm -hmm. like you know that's the kind of novels that you'd expect to be coming out now mm -hmm. so it felt like she was kind of way ahead of her time in terms of style mm -hmm. um and just also what you were saying about kind of the her being a model the, the character being a model um so obviously the book explores toxic kind of power dynamics in the modeling industry. Um, and I've kind of noticed that the books that you've chosen seem to have like a, a running theme of kind of women navigating male dominated industries and like, you know, the power dynamics between men and women. Mm -hmm. um, so is that a theme like you're conscious of, of kind of being drawn to um, and obviously similar kind of theme in in great circle as well especially as you were saying with with Hadley so yeah, I'm just kind of curious about that yeah absolutely um and I think this book is a good example of you know I I, I think sometimes when things sort of burst into our culture cultural consciousness like with me too it's not that anything really changed. It's just suddenly there was this watershed of like language allowing us to articulate better this long existing dynamic. And I think this book is an example where you can see her grappling with all those things that were sort of roiling under the surface, you know, forever. Um, and the character doesn't really have the means to combat the misogyny she's dealing with and the pressures on beauty um, and the expectations for women. Yeah, and I, I like this book too, like the, you know, giving sort of a lot of attention and compassion to people who maybe wouldn't always get that, both in the character of Allison, the model, because you sort of think, oh, she's a model. Like, what does she have to complain about? You know, and it's like... <laughs> My boyfriend and I just watched the Hulu documentary about Victoria's Secret and Jeffrey Epstein called Angels and Demons. I don't know if it's over there yet, but you know, a lot of it was these Victoria's Secret models just sort of being sort of pawns in this strange messaging to women about what's what's sexy and what they're supposed to look like. And if you don't look like a supermodel, it's because you have like bad taste or you've made a mistake, you know, as opposed to it just being literally impossible for everyone except supermodels. Um, so, so both Allison's point of view, which I think would be easy to dismiss as overly privileged and therefore not interesting, um, and Veronica, who's the sort of off-putting, like dumpy, like slightly strange, you know, person she, she meets in one of her temp jobs and, and, um, 
I think Mary Gatesville makes her still be pretty annoying. Like you wouldn't want to hang out with her, but also extends a lot of compassion to her. And I always think that's interesting in fiction. Like people always ask me about like likability of characters. And I'm always like, I, I don't think about it. Like I'm, I want characters to be interesting as opposed mm-hmm. to, to, to likable. Yeah. yeah, I prefer interesting over likable any day. Oh yeah, hundred percent. Give me an unlikable protagonist. <laughs> I'm there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, there's like you don't want to hate the character because that's no fun no. either. But it's yeah, it's just again, it's such a complicated thing. It's like the language and the insights and the the sort of circumstances around the character. So much has to sort of come yeah. together. Yeah. I think what struck me, um when reading all of the books that you picked was that you have chosen books that are all set or predominantly set in the past Mm -hmm. um and in you know the 80s the 90s um what is it about that era that is kind of something that you are drawn to Hmm. (laughs) oh you know yeah I guess if I were gonna I would throw Sally Rooney into this group as well as kind of a contemporary counterpart I do think so I was born in 83 I mean I do think of nostalgia for the 90s like it was you know both the fact that I was a child and I think it was kind of a golden decade in terms of just not being beset by multiple catastrophes the way we are now like um (laughs) And so there's something I think restful to me about reading books set in that era where you feel like it's sort of fair just to con- to concentrate on the characters. Like now it's difficult to write about people and you go, okay, you know, do I, ha- do I write about how this character feels about climate change? And sort of like, it's such a dominant part of our lives and our psyches where does it fit into fiction or like the novel I'm writing now I'm starting it in 2019 so it's gonna bump up against the pandemic and it's like well how do you you know I think I'm just gonna jump over the part where everyone is hoarding toilet paper and just pick it up later <laughs> when people had sort of we don't need to remember that right you know it's like but you, now you have this the zone of multiple years where if you're gonna set anything in it you have to deal with this or in the U.S. like anything post 2016 you have to deal with Donald Trump and it's like yeah sort of books in the past I think just yeah has appeal and I agree with people who have said nostalgia is a toxic impulse but there's also something sort of liberating about it yeah definitely lean into the instinct I think. <laughs> yeah <for sure. laughs> your fourth choice and final choice was the love affairs of Nathaniel P by Adele Waldman can you tell us a little bit about the book and why you chose it? Yeah, I love this book. I've read it multiple times. It's nice and short. Um, I can't remember what year it came out. Let me look. I read it. I had sort of a college boyfriend who his family inspired seating arrangements. And he had a few things in common with Nate, who's the, the protagonist yeah. of this book. Yeah, so 2013. So yeah, it was the year after seating arrangements came out. I think, you know, this book in some ways combines a lot of the things I've said about the other books. Like it, she really trains both a very critical and a very compassionate lens on her characters, particularly Nate. 
And I think the impulse for a lot of female writers would be to tell the story through the perspective of a woman. And then it would sort of be like a story about how this guy is kind of this inscrutable dick and behaves badly. But because you're in his perspective and because she has such a granularity of thought, like she's really in the nitty gritty of what everyone thinks and feels, which I find very hard to do and very hard to maintain. And I really admire how she does it. Um, I'd say the same about Elif Batuman. Um, you know, it's, she gets at these sort of truths and, and things he does that are uncool, but you kind of understand it at the same time. And I, I found that really transfixing. And there are a few observations in it that have stayed with me forever. And, and one I kind of referenced a few minutes ago where um, Nate, the, the main character is, is dating this woman and he's, I think essentially just not that into her. And I, I also felt like, you know, this is a growing up story and, and kind of a moment in life where you realize like you can't force yourself to be into people, even if they're worthy people. And he, you know, just because he's not that into her, he'll sort of hypercritical of the way she looks. And he takes it as sort of a failure of taste or judgment, I think is the line that like something, you know, she won't look <laughs> perfect. And I was like, I really think that's how a lot of men feel. It's, and it was, you know, where it's like, well, you've just chosen to, and this boyfriend I had would kind of critique things about me in that sense. And I was like, I don't know, man, like they're my eyebrows. Like, I'm sorry. <laughs> just, I can't choose to change them really. And yeah. So I just, I just thought it was a really perfect crystalline, extremely focused portrait of a person and a moment and a place. Mm. I think Brooklyn, it's a good take on Brooklyn too. So obviously before you were talking about kind of not minding characters that are unlikable. Uh, however, yeah. <laughs> I found Nate pretty insufferable. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so where do you draw the line? Because I mean, like one of my favorite books in recent years is Sorrow and Bliss mm. by Meg Mason. Mm-hmm. And um, is it, it's Martha, isn't it? The protagonist, yeah. Martha. She's obviously a very flawed character. Now, I don't know like if you've read Sorrow and Bliss. I have but, read it. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, so she's obviously a very flawed character but I loved that about her like I adored you know her for her flaws and but whereas with Nate I just couldn't get past his mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so kind of where do you draw the line I mean in terms of maybe yeah. reading or writing or yeah I mean I I think that's totally fair I think I sensed more narrative distance in this book than in Sorrow and Bliss. So in some ways I, f- I could feel Adele's observations and opinions, which mm-hmm. gave me distance on the character. Cause I was like, yeah, he sucks. He's terrible. <laughs> I think maybe there's hope for him, maybe. Um, but also I felt like he was at the receiving end of like a skewering, like she's yeah. definitely, you know, not presenting him as, as perfect, even though I, I do think she treats him compassionately. Whereas Sorrow and Bliss, I think you know, the, the narrative voice first person, right? So yes. you're, you're in Martha. Um, and so, I mean, for it to work, Meg had to generate all that compassion internally mm-hmm. rather than, you know, 
through a longer a longer lens um but yeah it is I mean there and of course there are books that I pick up and I put down I'm like you know (laughs) not spending time with this person they're awful I'm trying to think of an example I'm like staring at my bookshelves um they've probably just gotten rid of those books yeah it's hard to do and it's also like a matter of um opinion you know everybody's different and and one of the weird things about being an author now with things like goodreads and amazon reviews is like everybody thinks their opinion is the sort of like one that matters you know so people like seek me out in order to be like well i did not care for this character and i'm like okay like i'll go back in time and change it what do you want you know but um yeah I mean I I also think everybody's entitled to just like put down a book it's not doing it for you yeah Yeah. definitely I I, what I loved about me and there wasn't much (laughs) what I did (laughs) well was that he was full of contradictions um and you know he literally would go from like oh well she's all right to but, but then I do hate this bit about it, like her arms jiggle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and he was just, he, he wanted to be in a relationship. He didn't want to be in a relationship. He wanted to be committed. He didn't want to be committed. Within like a sentence, um, Adele managed to encapsulate that kind of train of thought mm-hmm. um, really well. Um, did you, um, do you find yourself drawn to like contradictory characters or, you know, characters that kind of, are a bit like that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it can be really hard in fiction to create room for people to hold contradictory thoughts or to change their minds. Like we do it so much in life and it's relatively rare in novels, I think. And an example I mentioned in the past is um, in Elena Ferrante's novels, the characters are always changing their minds. Like one page, they'll be like, she knew then that she must never leave the neighborhood and she must spend her whole life there. And then the next page, it's like, she knew she must leave the neighborhood tomorrow. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's always swinging back and forth. And I was like, I do think that's kind of how we exist in our heads. Mm-hmm. Some people, you know, you're like, oh, I hate this. And then the next day you're like, oh, it's not that bad, you know? And, and <laughs> it's, it's not, it's like normal, human thought I think but it can be hard to render on the page I think Mm. more typically in fiction than in life a character will make a decision follow through with it and then it's done you know and there's a lot less of this sort of wild swinging around and I think you know Nate too like there's just a larger statement about masculinity and also you know this was 2013 so again like a lot of this hadn't been articulated quite as much as it is now. Like the phrase toxic masculinity basically didn't exist. And, (laughs) and Nate's sort of, you know, entitlement that he's not even quite aware of. And he knows he wants to have these sort of liberal ideas, but at the same time, he doesn't want a girl's arms to jiggle. Like it's that sort of lack of self-aware it's not even lack of self-awareness. It's just like a lack of empathy or just self absurdness that sort of dwarfs his empathy. Um, I found really well rendered. Mm. Mm-hmm. So my other question uh, about this book. Um, so obviously quite a few of your choices are about writers or characters who explore themselves through writing. Um, so what is it about 
writers as characters that is so kind of appealing to read uh, is that uh, <laughs> because it's a relatability thing for you or yeah what is that yeah writers love reading and writing about writers it's always like and then she decided to become the most interesting thing in the world like a writer <laughs> what could be more captivating than a novelist um, yeah I mean some of it was that I was intentionally choosing books that I felt spoke to each other but I am you know if I read the back of a book and it's like such and so as a struggling novelist I'll be like (laughs) you're coming home with me you know um I don't know yeah it's the I'm sure it's relatability I think you know in novels too you're so even people who aren't writers are readers and that's in great circle Marion reads and yeah I don't know it's just uh something I'm drawn to for sure I love that. That's that's me. If I see something says struggling actor. Struggling like, actor. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I also like along with likability, I think relatability is overrated, but at the same time, I'm as much of a mark for it as anybody else. Yeah. Like, yeah. About me. Don't mind if I do. <laughs> so is there a particular one of these books that if we had a knife to your throat and said you have to choose one of these books, which one would it be? I think Veronica is the best book on a literary level. I think if someone were like, I just need to read something I'll really enjoy, I would recommend Writers and Lovers. Okay, great. (laughs) I love Writers and Lovers. Thank you so much for these recommendations. But before we let you go, um, we also like to end on cultural recommendations. I think you're going to be all recommendationed out by the end of this. <laughs> like, oh, give me a break, guys. <laughs> but do you have any, is there anything you've enjoyed recently? You know, it can be TV, film, theatre, anything. Sure. Yeah, let's see. Well, I saw Top Gun Maverick, which <gasps> I enjoyed. I hadn't been in a movie in the theatre. Well, I guess when I, was, when I was in London for the Booker, we went to see um, The Paris Dispatch, that Wes Anderson movie. Mm-hmm. That was the first movie I'd seen in the theater in a couple years because of COVID. And I thought it was so boring. <laughs> Captain Maverick is not boring. It's kind of like, I don't know. Yeah, again, hits the nostalgia sweet spot. It's not very long. There's sort of no bloodshed. There's like a faceless enemy. Lots of airplanes going zoom. Um, <laughs> it was fun. Uh, TV, yeah, my boyfriend who I live with, we watch quite a bit of TV. Um, we loved the staircase oh, yeah. um, in the UK. Yeah. And I'd watched the original documentary too. So I thought that was really fascinating. Um, we've watched as the dropout about Theranos. So Amazing. good. So good. <laughs> so good. Her performance, unreal. Yeah. Um, we watched We Crashed about WeWork, which is not as good, but we also enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Um, Amazing. Yeah. Uh, that's more recommendations than expected um, <laughs> oh. <laughs> but yeah I mean I, I think we have got every recommendation possible out of you um but a great rich so to drag. we have um so thank you obviously so much for for doing this um you know we were absolutely thrilled when you said you would come on where can our listeners find you and your work my work can be found in bookstores. Um, 
I, my website is just my name. So www.maggieshipstead.com. Um, there are a lot of links there to my travel writing. And the only social media I actively do is Instagram. And I am at Shipstead. We will make sure that everything's linked in our show notes. Yes, definitely. And there's definitely none of our listeners are going to be the kind of people that you were speaking about before that are like, so is there anything that I might have read of yours? They're all going to be like, (laughs) (laughs) would I have heard of you? I don't know. (laughs) Um, But yeah, thank you so much. Um, And I hope our listeners uh, enjoyed um, our little chat with you. Um, so yeah, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys.